Hello and welcome to the Brexit Day edition of Sleep Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I am in London. Today is January the 30th. Well, today, as far as you guys listening to the show are concerned, it's February the 1st. But for me, it is January the 31st. We record the show on Fridays. I am in London on Brexit Day. It is a highly emotional day here in the UK. And I am joined not only by Anna Shemansky and Emily Peck of Breaking Views and HuffPost, respectively. Hi, guys. Hello. Hello. But also by the one and only Isabella Kaminska of the Financial Times. Hello. Nice <laughs> to be here. Izzy has a bit of a frog in her throat. <coughs> Sorry. <laughs> but she's going to help us navigate the wild terrain of Brexit. She is also, would you say, the, the biggest contrarian of the pink paper, the salmon-colored paper. <laughs> I think there's one other person who probably is more contrarian than me, but we've just exported him to China, so it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> He's the new Shanghai correspondent. But yeah, other than that, I'll take that title. So, so Isabel is going to do her very best to explain why the Brexiteers aren't completely insane and why they might have a point. We may or may not be convinced about this, but she will, she will give it the old college try. She's going to talk about ESG. We are going to talk about ESG, environmental concerns when it comes to investing and whether um, they actually make things better or not. And because Isabella is the world's biggest nerd, we are going to take this opportunity to answer all of the questions you didn't realize you had about LIBOR. It's worth it. Trust me on this one. All of that coming up on Slate Money. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Britain has no say, no no membership on the European Council. Whatever rules Europe sets will still, will still bind Britain, at least yep. through the end of the year. But Britain has no control over what those rules That's are. That's exactly right. So we are in limbo for and a then, year. And then at the end of this year, either that limbo gets extended in what I'm... Um, the new extension uh, controversy, no <laughs> doubt. Yeah. In, mm. in what's, what some people have been calling Brino, Brexit in name only... Um, or if you believe Boris Johnson, all of the deals will be done by December the 31st, and then it will be a proper Brexit at that point. Now, the next big obvious question is, is there any reason to believe Boris Johnson? 
Um, well, he did get Brexit done. <laughs> took, it took him a few months longer than he said it would. But. And I'm kind of curious, like, in terms of, like, what exactly is the ideal situation here for Britain in terms of the... Yeah, what, what's the best case scenario here? So I think, you know, it really depends what sort of Brexiteer you are, because... Okay, let's know, just contrary- give your Boris Johnson. Okay, well, it's unknown what kind of Brexiteer he really is. I mean, one one might call him a sort of libertarian-style Brexiteer, um, bringing in, well, he wants to bring about some sort of independence Singapore on Thames, possibly some people perceive it. But then there's, you know, the indications that he's much more, you know, he, he has made promises that he will keep the good rules out of Europe when it comes to climate and, and all these other things. It's not like we're shedding everything. People are concerned that some of the sort of financially focused rules might go away. But I don't, again, that's going to be much harder than what people like the sort of Singapore on Thames lobby would be making out because there is an issue of equivalence. Um, you need to have the rules anyway to be able to trade in it. Okay, so let, let's let's rewind a bit. Sorry. <laughs> we're, we're getting I'm we're getting a little in bit obscure terms. Like, sorry. So yeah, this is this is the problem trying to talk to anyone English about Brexit is oh, they gosh. assume you know everything, right, and right, in right. fact, as an American, we know nothing. Okay. So let's rewind a little bit and say Britain is famous as a financial services center. And financial services are a big international thing. And to what degree, like, what does Boris Johnson need to do between now and the end of December in order for financial services to continue to be able to financially service in London? So basically, the background is that I remember being at a BBA banking panel thingy in the city and just before Brexit and taking a poll, like a, a hand, a straw poll about who was in and who was anti-Brexit. And basically all the bankers in the room were Remain. They were all pro-Remain, which kind of tells you the issue in banking. So banks, the UK banks really need access to the European market. They can't get that if we pull out and start making our own rules and regulations. The EU will just not let us passport into their market. That's the big issue, passporting in, being able to sell our services. Because we are such a major financial centre, that's really important because, quite frankly, you know, without the ability to service Europe, um, you know, some people might say, oh, well, the future is markets in, in Asia or markets, you know, elsewhere in, 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 in the world. But the reality is, is that our core financial centres really need that access into the UK, into the European Union. Now, and they're not going to get it, right? Well, they're not. It doesn't look like they're going to get it. But there's been this long-standing argument from the pro-Brexit bankers that I I do know that you know it doesn't matter whether we get it or not because there's some sort of legal, um, you know logic that if we have equivalence, which means that we match the uh, the rules of the Europeans, regardless of whether, you know, essentially we, we are bonded to their rulemaking anyway, and we keep going with the rules that they establish, then they have to give us access, that they can't discriminate against us because there's no reason to discriminate against us. This is something I find kind of interesting because it seems like a big part of Brexit was the idea of the UK being able to kind of take back control and make its own rules. But because it is just so tied to the EU through trade of goods and services, it seems like that's impossible. And it's going to end up being controlled by the EU rules regardless. Yeah, if, if it wants access to the EU market, it's going to practically have to abide by EU rules, you know, on pain of not having access to the EU market. So 
In what sense is that taking back control? So I think you have to look at the mix of the economy, though. So in terms of the UK, you know, from an exporter's point of view, we're not a really big exporting country compared to the European countries themselves who export into us. So we are a net importer from Europe anyway. Our main export is financial services. That's one of our really big ones. So that's why the passporting issue is so huge. Um, But if you speak to Brexiteers, they would say, well, this was the problem all along, the way Europe was set up, it sort of killed all our other industries, we had no choice but to be um, entirely sort of uh, concentrated in financial services, and that's a kind of rentier, uh, elitist industry that has massively led to inequality in the UK, and quite frankly, if the banks have to move to Frankfurt, why not let them go there? Right, but that's kind of a... Probably not the greatest argument, though, right? If you're thinking of like what what other industries did the Brexiteers think that the UK was going to all of a sudden become dominant in? If you're looking at labor costs in the UK versus in the strength of the pound, you know, like, comparing this to like say Germany, I mean, is is that really the greatest argument that they're making there? Well, I mean, it really you, know, you have to look at the big picture. I think if you if you are looking at it from a Brexiteer point of view. You have this long-standing rhetoric about how we had the Commonwealth. Um, you know, before the EU, we were we were bound to our interests in in the, the larger sort of former British Empire. And so, back in the day, back in like in the seventies, you would find sort of New Zealand lamb and all these sort of Commonwealth products everywhere. Not so much the Danish bacon. And then, you know, as we joined the EU, my dad always goes on about my dad is a Brexiteer. Talks, you know, about how oh, and you could see the transition. We all had Danish bacon after that. So um, the the point being, though, that there was a sort of legacy commitment that we had to the Commonwealth, and we sort of let go of that in favour of of preferential treatment to which, which to the, may or may not be true. But either way, like it, there's no particular reason to believe that doing trade deals with New Zealand or Uganda or anyone else is going to be particularly easier than doing trade deals with the EU, and especially not the big one, which is the United States. One question I have to like pull back from the difficulty of trade negotiations is what has happened to the UK over the past three years? Is I see a lot of headlines, and I admit to not reading most of the articles, <laughs> about um, how the, the British economy is struggling under the uncertainty that certainly surrounds it and has surrounded it for three years and will continue to surround it because people still don't know how this is all shaking out. Like, how are things going over there? Right. There was that famous estimate that the British economy has already lost like 200 billion pounds due to like businesses holding off on investment thanks to uncertainty. Yeah, I think uncertainty has been the issue. and um, But the Brexiteers would say, well, that's not our fault because we would have got it done years ago <laughs> if not for all these horrifically obstructionist uh, remainers. So, um, yeah, but yes, I mean, fault, business, like how is bu- the economy doing? Business obviously hates uncertainty. And I think that was my, you know, interestingly enough, um, when, when Trump was elected, I was at Web Summit and I remember... The day before going around all these high tech um, companies and sort of saying, you know, who who do you support? And they were like, oh, definitely Hillary, Hillary, Hillary. And what I found really interesting was the d- next day I, I went round and I started talking to them and they were and I was like, so isn't is it awful? You, you all wanted Hillary to win and ah, and they were like, yeah, but you know, we can make it work. We can make Trump work. And that's what I found find really interesting about business people is that they they tend to be quite pragmatic and so they go for the easiest uh, option, but then they 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 try to make the be- the best out of it. 
of a terrible situation. So um, I kind of suspect business, once they have the certainty, they can work around it. There's going to be but th- major that's challenges. that's not going to be years, right? right the certainty isn't going to be yeah. right for a long time. Is there anything other than trade that we should be worried about? Or is, or is Brexit basically 100% a trade thing? No, I mean, there's a lot to worry about. I think, um, you know, if, if you are a foreign national in the UK, you, there's been a lot, lots of assurances that everything's going to be okay. But in terms of you know, we re- we really don't know what the immigration picture is going to look like post transition period. I mean, there's talk of an Australian point system where we let in sort of highly skilled people and not so much unskilled people, and that we rank them. But we don't really know. We don't really have clarity on how that's going to look as yet. Um, that's concerning to anyone who has ambitions uh, working in Europe. If you're British, because theoretically there's going to be reciprocity um, reciprocity exactly so um i think that is quite limiting my you know i have a lot of friends who live in france and, and they're concerned about whether they will continue to have their access to um sort of french schooling systems or french healthcare, that sort of stuff one would think that reciprocity isn't everyone's best interest so but it um, does kind of defeat the purpose on some level because that was a large part of the reason why people voted for Brexit in the first place is they said there are too many bloody foreigners in this Well, some people (laughs) would have voted for that but yes, um, I think... um, I think generally speaking, immigration was one of the key policy areas. So they're going to have to move on this. Otherwise, you know, for the benefit of the US listeners, I'm sure know that Boris Johnson like completely sort of surprised everyone by getting a foothold of these former very Labour strongholds in the UK, the sort of what I would call our equivalent Rust Belt, who have historically always voted Labour. And this was a really unexpected turn in the election. And to continue to carry favor in those areas he's going to have to live up to some of their expectations which a lot of them were based around immigration so he's going to have to look tough or lose his base so um i'm not i'm not a political strategist so i have no idea how that's going to be achieved but you know he's he's really you know boris is the buffoon PM who likes to play, you know, he's uh, he wants to see himself as a man of the people. He's already reducing himself to sort of um, funny little publicity stunts. I mean, he famously uh, impersonated uh, that scene. Um, I don't know which actor it was from Love Actually. You know, I mean, he's not. He's the sort of man who will do very strange things to get attention. I mean, he's, there's an entire like. Uh, array of memorabilia Brexit tea towels that you can get I mean that's that's coming straight from conservative at HQ so they're, they're really thinking outside of the box how to <laughs> how to continue to appeal and you can you can become you can now buy it there's a commemorative coin coming out there's all sorts of strange ways the that he's appealing changing colour oh yeah the pop, people are very upset about the passports I actually I, was go- I found my old blue passport I was going to bring it in to, but I forgot um, yeah, so but back in the day before we, we were in the European Union, uh, the uh, passports were blue and now and then they went red and now they are famously going to go blue again. So here um, in the US after Trump was elected in the past few years, I think culturally the country has gone through some things. Um, uh, there's white nationalism has sort of gotten stronger. There's more hostility, open hostility towards minorities, that kind of thing. Has there been kind of a similar situation in UK in terms of like a cultural shift and like more open hostility towards foreigners? Um, 
Yeah, I think it depends what side of the debate you're on. But like, I think uh, if you're on the remain remained side of the debate, absolutely. People have lost friends and family over this debate. Like people, um, I, I don't know so much if in the US there would be so much, whether families would be divided over Trump versus Hillary. For but sure. Like, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the same thing here. Like, remain, remain, leave defines who you are, and that's kind of been my main issue with it because I find it absolutely absurd that people who have had like really good relations for like thirty years or so are you know not not friends anymore because of how they voted in in the referendum. So that there has been a lot of hostility. It's got very factional, and um, and I don't think I think. Both sides suffer from the fact that neither side is really listening to each other still. The, the one thing that we're absolutely, that seems absolutely certain in US politics mm-hmm. going forwards, no matter who wins the presidential election, is that there isn't, it's not going to be a globalist. It's not going to be an internationalist. It's not going to be someone who's like, let's have more free trade and more immigration. Like, it's, it that ship has sailed, you know, and it, I feel like we're on the backswing now, and Brexit is a symptom of that, and Trump is a sw- symptom of that, and it remains to be seen how long this backswing lasts, but it could last for a very long time. Yeah, I mean, wh- how what what do you think in terms of how globalization can go move forward in this in this context at all? Yeah, I think it goes backwards. Just just I mean, but do you think that is going to be um, economically? very damaging then yeah because yeah, <laughs> yeah. By, by definition <laughs> but do yeah. you think and we see a decline so, in global culturally. trade i mean it's and the only times when we've seen this this these types of drops in global trade we've seen this types of increase in factionalism have been you know in in periods of history where we've had very bad things happen afterwards i mean and, and just the reality is you know you're not going to see economic conditions improving throughout the world if you're seeing less trade I don't think that's happening, you know. I will play devil's advocate as usual because that's just what I do. But um, the counter argument would be, well, there are lots of things we do that hurt ourselves for the sake of what might be perceived a greater good. And in the UK, at least, there's a a feeling that that globalization has shifted a lot of employment to uh, either outsourced it to other, other countries in Europe or it has sort of undercut uh, domestic workers in favor of uh, foreign workers, etc. And and it's undermined the cohesion of our local communities. And the high street has suffered everything from the sort of phenomenon of the abandoned cities like Grim- Grimsby, etc. to a rise in... Um, w- We've had a lot of uh, crime go up in the UK as well. We've had the emergence of sort of really violent drug gang phenomenon here in London. So people would link all of that together and they would say, well, if we have to suffer a little bit economically just to get the return of our communities, um, it might be a price that's worth paying. And then I I would also counter it with the argument of like, well, ESG and us being very environmentally friendly uh, mindful these days we all know that's going to be a cost to our economy in some ways there's no way we can achieve the the kind of greta um targets without cutting uh, our growth in in some shape or form i mean greta herself famously said that uh, the fairy tale of economic growth is something we have to abandon if we want to save the planet so i think the other perspective is that sometimes it's not just about economic growth at any cost and yes we are we can measure it in in, in financial terms in pu- purely pecuniary sort of 
terms or G- GNI, co- what is it, Gini co- coefficiency um, numbers. But the reality is that there are some things that are not financialized that are worth a greater sacrifice for. That would be the counter argument, but I'm sure <laughs> you will tell me I'm an idiot. <laughs> Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people fractured me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's rebel billionaire on the slow newscast wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> no, I think I think that's the perfect segue for us to move on to the whole question of ESG, which stands for? Oh, environment, society and governance, isn't it? Some, something like Social. that. Yeah. It's, Social. It's, a, it's this big buzzword, which the buy side loves mm. to throw around, the buy side being investors, people who buy stocks and bonds. And everyone and their mother these days is claiming to be hyper-conscious of ESG issues and wanting to invest in companies which are good on the ESG front and wanting to disinvest from com- companies that are bad on the ESG front. And we've had lots of high-minded letters from the likes of Larry Fink, who controls $7 trillion of assets or something enormous like that. And somewhere the implication is that all of this activity by fund managers of investing in this and not investing in that is going to make a positive difference to the planet. Emily, as the resident bleeding heart liberal, like presumably you are all in favor of this. Um, I mean, in theory, it sounds great, but in practice, it, the idea that these funds can somehow change the world or make us go green or make us more socially conscious, I think, has been and is a failure. I, I don't think that social change comes is going to come at us by, you know, me deciding to put my retirement savings into a socially conscious index fund or um, or even giving it to Al Gore or, to or giving it invest. to Al Gore. I just, I mean, it just seems like with so many things that companies do, it seems maybe well intentioned maybe just PR and at the end of the day it sort of doesn't matter all that much. So, you know, but, I, I think that I, I agree with you to a certain extent and I think I used to agree with you maybe a little bit more, but mm-hmm. I will say I do think some things are shifting here. And mm-hmm. and I, I agree with you that I just think like an individual saying, okay, I'm going to invest in this ESG fund is, is probably not going to make a lot of difference. But how much ESG is becoming part of the conversation when you talk to CEOs and CFOs, like this is something people are thinking about and it is actually affecting change. You talk about people who are working at energy companies and they are actually doing things because 
because this is something that the people who who are investing in them, their clients are asking about. You have. Well, wait, hang on a sec. But when you say change, Anna, let's be really clear about Mm -hmm. this. Let's assume for the sake of argument that it is actually changing asset allocations and it is in you know, decreasing the amounts of money that people are putting towards this and increasing the amount of money that people are putting towards that. Is there any evidence that that those kind of decisions, insofar as they're being made by investors, are having any actual effect on the planet? So uh, two things. On the one hand, I will agree with you that I think because we're still in early stages that obviously I don't think you could say that you could point to numbers and be like, oh, because this amount of money has moved from this fund to this fund, that's going to change someone's behavior. I, I agree with you. I don't think that is that is happening. I'm, I'm more talking about the conversation and the fact that you have clients talking to fund managers who are then talking to these companies. And I do think that is changing behavior. You're seeing mining companies who are actually starting to deal with their tailings dams after bunch of people dying but you know you you ha- but because also you have now a lot of pressure you have a large funds saying well you know we're going to be moving money out if you're not making these changes and while individuals an individual investor yeah that's probably not the biggest deal in the world but if you're talking about large institutional investors moving forward i do think they can have an impact okay wait so you've kind of changed a little bit I think you said like you started off saying there has been an impact and you now you've moved to I think there might be an impact. Which one is it? Has, has there been an impact or do you think there might be an impact? I would say <laughs> I would say like a little bit of both. So more, more the latter. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, as I said, we're okay. in so relatively let's, early so let's, stages. Let's, yeah. let's let's stop it there. So like, Anna thinks there might be an impact. And presumably when you're saying an impact, you mean a positive impact. Isabella Kaminska is the world's greatest contrarian. (laughs) So you are now going to tell me that there has been an impact and it has been negative. (laughs) Well, so ESG is definitely a thing. It's it's going to be impacting uh, the markets for sure. Um, we're going to see a huge shift. The portfolio reallocation is going to be massive. It's already started. Um, I was kind of involved in a little bit of this because I got to moderate a, um, a climate finance panel back in, uh, in at the Paris summit thing. They did the before the main Paris thing. There was a special climate finance uh, uh, thing a few months before that. So I got to speak to like a bunch of asset managers and, and inter- interview them on stage. And at the time, there was a there was already uh, a perception that divestment might not be the best way forward. Because the problem with divestment, of course, is that someone still has to buy it. So, so, right. so someone, <laughs> someone's going to wind up owning it. Yeah. And, and you know, I think there is a case for divesting from capital-intensive industries because if you're not pumping capital into them, then they will produce less bad stuff. But if you're talking about inherently profitable industries like coal, divesting from coal does no good at all. Well, and, and, well, and so, about- yes, so here's the issue is that um, look at tobacco. Tobacco has been a vice sort of stock for a very long time and it's it's been a great performer and dividends are like hugely wonderful so if you want to sit back and take very little risk and just feed off uh nice dividends then high dividend these these stocks that people are divesting are very likely to turn into that especially as if their cash flows remain high which is very likely because the transition to renewables is going to take a while and and in the interim we're still going to have like fossil fuel consumption is still growing right let's not forget it there is an annual increase every year in terms of how much we're consuming 
And um, if if you take away the financing, meanwhile, you could argue, well, they will naturally have to like adjust or they won't get financing. But then if you take that like chess chess wise a little bit forward, well, what happens then? You have um, assets that either get shut down and make which makes countries like the UK at least increasingly dependent on imports from other other less say democratic countries like Russia or China um, not not that China's an oil exporter but essentially uh, Russia mainly um, or you end up with a situation where if the western ba- banks or p- pension funds are not going to be financing these assets there's no reason why the Russians or the Chinese or, or countries that are less inclined to worry about these things might might you know they might come in and swoop in and buy all those assets anyway i um had a thought <laughs> regardless of whether divesting works or doesn't work and practically speaking it seems like there is a big symbolic and real effect just in the fact that these um massive financial companies are taking environmental issues seriously. And that could have an effect politically that I think is actually pretty important. Like, I you see, okay, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask you what your evidence is that financial companies <laughs> are taking environmental com- issues <sighs> seriously, because, Damn because it, you have like, you have big companies, <laughs> you know, saying, you know, oh, yeah, we take environmental com- issues seriously. And then at the same time, they underwrite the Saudi Aramco IPO. Right. You know? I mean, it's kind of like this. It's like, it's like all things dialectical, Felix. Like, you say that you believe a thing with one hand, like Larry Fink or whoever saying, like, the environment's super important. And then with the other hand, you do, like, some nasty stuff. But at some point, you get held to account for the thing that you say and don't mean And what is the mechanism by which these f- financial companies are being held to account? So far, there is none. But... Well, I mean, it, it, I, I mean, but I think that's where this like little thing called democracy might come in handy. And sort of like once the rhetoric starts going, you can't really control what happens politically as much. So that's that's exactly where I agree with you. And this is, as far as I'm concerned, the beginning and the end of this discussion is that real change when it comes to the environment has to be political change. Right. It can never come from the financial Correct. sector. The financial sector is always going to lag political economy. If you look at the question about, say, like, how do the big index funds vote their shares? Because they have to own these companies. And then if they're going to own these companies, they may as well vote their shares in an environmentally responsible way. And they're not even doing that. And the reason they're not doing that is because Big financial institutions are always going to be much more cowardly than even the most cowardly and ineffective government. Anything that is actually going to happen to change the planet or to make the planet better is going to come from governments. And the governments are going to have to drag the financial institutions along behind them to a greater or lesser degree of willingness. I just don't believe that the causality works the other way and that Jamie Dimon making some noises about environmental friendliness is going to you know, suddenly going to get Donald Trump to re-sign onto the Paris. No, they're, they're I think they're reflecting back, I think, popular sentiment. They're reflecting back, like, not the Greta's, but like m- most people now who want at least to feel like we're doing something about climate. I think that corporate America, these financial institutions are very sensitive to that. And I think that's where their rhetoric is coming from. And that's the bit where I worry that ESG concerns are actually counterproductive is that it, they make people 
think that they're doing something. Mm. And well, we I, are so far mm, mm-hmm. from making the from making even the beginnings of the necessary degree of adjustment. And if you look at how much adjustment is needed to the world's carbon emissions in order to keep yeah. the global temperature rise to within a catastrophic two degrees Celsius over pre-industrial levels. Like we need to slash these things. And what we're doing right now is we're talking about tiny little tinkering at the margin. And if people think that tiny little tinkering at the margin is like a step in the right direction or helpful, that what that's actually bad. It like inoculates you against the massive changes that the world needs to make on pain of catastrophe. I think you're mostly true, but I, I do think that the fact that it's such a conversation is also going to affect politics. Yes, of course, governments are going to have to take the lead in this. I, I, I mean, I think that's obviously true. But the financial system is an incredibly important part of how a country runs. So if changes are going to be made, it's going to be probably, yes, from the government, but then it's going to have to work itself through the financial system. But I, I again, being the resident contrarian, I would, I would just caution that um, you know, I agree with you, Felix, entirely. It has to be government-led. But um, but I don't know how familiar Americans are with the Extinction Rebellion movement here in the UK. Um, so it's a sort of militant environmental movement being led by sort of, I would say, mainly middle-class white people um, who like to live in the counties. Uh, but they but they've come. They've paralysed London. They've they've really kind of become a. a a really evident sort of political force. But um, what, one of the things they're advocating is bas- basically the suspension of d- democracy because their belief is that to get anything done, to reach those targets, we can't do it in a democracy. And then you just have to look to France and the Gilets Jaunes and the sort of general reaction to any sort of carbon uh, emission reduction focused policy that it, they're not going to be popular policies. And in a democracy, it's very unlikely they're going to get voted in. So you either have, in my opinion, you need to either educate educate the masses like in a wartime sense and this has to be market-led so people are happy to make the sacrifices needed um, to get to the point that we need to get to and that's kind of what Extinction Rebellion is also trying to campaign for in terms of awareness but on the other hand you also have to um, in that well they just they just want to get rid of the the, the political process as it stands and bring in these citizens assemblies where that which are appointed with experts who decide things and then random sort of lottery based system of like having someone from the regions represented every now and then but it's a complete suspension of democracy as it is and so I think that is what we have to realistically be talking about and I do think ESG as a result is not compatible with uh, free markets and with uh, unless we have the market-led reaction. Um, so it, it, it not only has to be a political response, it has to be a complete suspension of the politics we have had today. And the other little pets uh, hate I had a, have about the whole phenomenon at the moment is that we are so focused about lowering emissions here in the West, but that's not really the area that we have to worry about. It's the Chinas that we and, and Asia that's the really, you know, the big polluting factor. And there has been a bit of forward progress from China. But, you know, Greta needs to get herself over to China. I don't know if she would do that currently. But um, with respect to (laughs) the slight virus uh, at hand, but um, but that's really where she's 
that's the people she's got to be, you know, speaking to. In terms of the the Western um, sort of areas, we've done a lot already in terms of our waste. Like the UK has not been adding to wa- its waste uh, profile for, for for a while now. The more developed you are, the more likely you're going to be environmental. Ironically enough, with the obvious and massive exception of the United States, which has had this massive fracking boom and has you know contributed significantly to carbon emissions. Right. But that is, we're talking about emissions, but even then, one of the other things that I think in in Europe, when we look at like, you know, even if emissions are slowing, we have outsourced so much of our productivity and production manufacturing to China that we're kind of, you know, it's not fair to just blame China here because we're importing all those products that they make with coal-fired plants via Amazon, are we not? We are. So that's that's just my little point. (laughs) Okay, let's have a final segment on. Come on, Izzy, you can remember. Libel. Libel. Oh. <laughs> because, you know, if you're going to have Isabella Kaminska come on your show, it is going to get nerdy. And there is a major change that is happening to the global financial system. And absolutely no one knows what is going to happen. And it is completely chaotic and is he help me out here but has any progress been made no i don't think so everyone is <laughs> everyone i speak to is still completely in, in Wait, you know felix so, can you so, back sorry. up and explain what you're talking yes, about yes yes thank thank you the <laughs> you may or may not recall that there was a big scandal about this thing called libor which is this floating interest rate which goes up or down according to how much it costs banks to borrow money. And it turns out that banks were quite good at manipulating this rate to make money for themselves. And people got very upset about this. And also, no one really cares how much it costs banks to borrow money in terms of how much they pay. They just want to know what prevailing interest rates are rather than just interest rates for banks. And LIBOR just didn't make sense on a bunch of different levels. And it had obviously been gamed and abused. And so a big international census, consensus rather emerged pretty quickly that we were going to get rid of LIBOR and everyone agreed, yes, let's get rid of LIBOR. It's out of date. It's anachronistic. And we can all agree that LIBOR is out of date and it's anachronistic and we'll replace it with something better. And we all agreed on this very quickly. And now we're like, oh shit, now we have to come up with something better. And the best that we've come up with, Anna, is something called SOFA. <laughs> yes. Um, the, well, which is so, not so what you're sitting on to watch Netflix. Yes. So for the secured overnight financing <laughs> right in the US, there's also Sonia in the UK, right? Mm. Um, she was also very big in the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a joke that only Felix is going to get. Sorry. So so basically, and and also just explain why LIBOR or why these rates are important is that you have, you know, somewhere near, you know, what, $400 trillion in derivatives, in bonds, in loans that are tied to this rate. All of these contracts that are tied to this rate. So it's it's not a small thing to switch from one rate to another. And and I think some and, t- and all of these contracts are written down on pieces of paper, and the pieces of paper don't automatically update themselves. Ex- well, and so when LIBOR goes away, and someone pulls out the piece of paper to f- work out how much interest they're supposed to pay, the piece of paper says LIBOR, and then they go out, they they toot along to the markets and they say what's LIBOR, and LIBOR, and the markets say 
LIBOR? We haven't had LIBOR in years. And then what do you do? And well, no that's actually, how to solve this. And, 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 the, and the lawyers are having a field day because <laughs> they're going to be like, oh, lots of business for us representing all these upset investors when they don't get LIBOR. <laughs> well, because this is interesting because, like, I mean, especially if you're talking about loans and bonds, because, I mean, technically, like, if you are if you have a bond that has that written in it, you don't have some other clause about what happens if there's no LIBOR, then it would basically, you'd be changing a floating rate into a fixed rate. All of a sudden, you'd be like, okay, it's whatever LIBOR was, which, so you would actually have to get, like, a your bondholders to vote to change a rate. So, I mean, like, it's not an incredibly simple thing. It's it's a little bit easier with derivatives, but it, it gets a little complicated with bonds. But the one other thing I just want to take a step back, because I think sometimes when people talk about this, too, there's this sense of like, oh, well, we'll just exchange one rate for the other. And it's like, OK, but these rates are not the same thing. You're talking about LIBOR, which factored in the credit risk of banks, whereas the SOFR or SONIA, that's a that's a it's a risk free rate. rate. Right, mm-hmm. it's a risk-free right. rate. So, so, it's ba- so, so all of these new rates are on some sort of deeply fundamental a priori level going to be lower in terms of interest rate than LIBOR. And so if you are a borrower, you're really happy if you just switch one for the other. No, on the other hand, because if you're you an wouldn't investor, just, you you're, wouldn't, you're unhappy. You wouldn't do that. What you would do is you'd have to figure out some other way to factor in what that credit risk had been. You, you can't just say like, oh, well, we're just switching rates. That's not how it would work. You well, would I have, mean, but no one knows, right? No one knows how it's going to work. And and the fact is one, that this uh, change is meant to happen in 2021. Am I right about 22. this? Yes. And one of the problems is also that you would think that by now we would have this contractual problem, this tsunami of contracts that will have to be somehow rewritten because we do, because currently people are still using LIBOR because there's no alternative. So new contracts are still being struck under the LIBOR definition, which which is problematic for that reason alone, because you would have thought, oh, well, we haven't used LIBOR for 10 years. And and people are trying slowly to do new contracts, but you just don't, because it's a, it's a networking thing as well. So you don't want to like tie yourself to software when the go-to rate is going to be something else. So, yeah. um, and, and, and I think one of the issues of LIBOR is that you're going from an unsecured rate and, and, and it's been decided that those unsecured systems were very hard to assess in terms of, you know, they were very easy to game. This was the problem. So in before the crisis, the traders would come, club together and try and push the rates up as possible. They'd structured LIBOR supposedly to be game resistant, but it, by eliminating the, the most extreme uh, ends of the, the sort of... the be- but, but it was gamed but it people was have gone to prison for gaming it. Yeah, to- one like well, Mr. Hayes is still um, in some. He's still, he's gone for ten years, right? Yeah, but what, these were assessments essentially based on like what the banks were were saying themselves was their cost of of borrowing. But going to a transactional, like AKA, we will set the rate based on an average of how many transactions are are actually done in a day or in a week is a really problematic step because a lot of the time there was there's just not enough flow. So there's like one transaction that actually makes the system more gameable. Labor Labor famously had these things like there was like you know one year yen LIBOR or something and no bank had borrowed from another bank in yen for one year like for months and yet one year like yen LIBOR was still a thing that existed and all of these things are going to have to get structured there's going to have to be a replacement for all of them and the thing which is is really confusing to me is are we going to do this or are we going to reach 2021? Everyone's still going to be using LIBOR. No one can agree on how to transition. And 
somehow we'll all just like kick the can down the road and we'll never actually leave label. At which point Boris Johnson will come in with a solution. <laughs> we'll get sofa done. <laughs> no ifs, ands, or buts. I would rather die in a ditch. Exactly. <laughs> so, I think you'll definitely get it done. I mean, I think you'll definitely transition. I mean, I think there is a lot of will on both sides of the Atlantic. I mean, like, I definitely think you're going to switch to these other rates, but I don't think it's going to be an easy process. And I think you'll be do- seeing a lot of like, weirdly, what's happening now, which is a lot of the contracts that are written it, with like SOFR, they actually end up like hedging back into LIBOR. So I mean, I, I think you're going to end up with this kind of very long transition process as the system kind of moves over to a to a new rate. But I do think it'll eventually get done. But the problem with that, I was told by some, you know, people watching the space is that the, as you transition, the less people that use LIBOR, the more gameable it becomes. Of course, of course, yeah. <laughs> so there's this like re- weird paradox where in, during the transition period is going to be a real sort of opportunity for, for, for manipulating rates. L- Anna, what's your, what's your base case expectation for how long this like painful transition is going to take? I mean, I think you could easily see something taking a decade. I mean, I, I don't think this is going to be a something quick. Emily. So the first time I heard about LIBOR was because Jamie Dimon was involved and shady things were happening. So it actually seemed interesting for a second. (laughs) My question is, why would anyone outside of the people who use this rate care about it? How does it affect the normals? That's a very good question. Yeah, I think that's an extremely good question because (laughs) my, my, my base case answer to that, as with most hyphen and stuff, is it doesn't. And and but then again, <laughs> but then again, my answer to like how does LIBOR manipulate affect the normals yeah. is it doesn't. <laughs> One of the interesting things about LIBOR manipulation is that yeah. the banks were happy to manipulate LIBOR up and they were happy to manipulate LIBOR down. And depending on whether you're a borrower or a lender, and depending on like, you know, whether they were manipulating it up or down, you might have made an extra couple bucks or lost an extra couple bucks. Probably it all kind of came out in the wash. I don't think that LIBOR manipulation actually made any difference to normals. I think on some level, it really was a victimless crime. And uh, all of this intense effort to move away from LIBOR and towards something more honest, you can totally understand why you're doing it. And you shouldn't commit crimes, even if they're victimless. But it's a huge amount of effort to make up for something where there was almost no harm done. My father-in-law would say, you know, I, I tend to agree with your assessment, but my father-in-law would, would probably assess it the same way he assess, assesses PPI, which was another scandal here in the UK to do with selling useless insurance to people. His point is, well, it's it's, it's just going to make everything more expensive for us because the banks have to pay for it, blah, 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 and therefore everything's going to be more expensive That's for us. That's how he talks. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> but with a Scouse accent. <laughs> Um, Anna, do you do you believe there were victims to the LIBOR scandal? Yeah, I mean, I mostly kind of agree with you there. I, I don't think, and if there were, they were very sophisticated investors. It wasn't exactly like mom and pops. I mean, look, yeah, of course, I'm not saying it was good. It wasn't good. No one should be committing crimes or, you know, manipulating rates. But no, I, I don't think it was probably the, the world's biggest deal. And I do think that this is going to be a lot of effort to fix a system that I don't think was that broken in the grand scheme of things. It's interesting how the financial 
industry kind of rallies to fix things that don't matter and all the bigger broken things are like. Well, but this was also interesting because the LIBOR scandal happened at a period after the financial crisis, I think also where in both the U.S. and the U.K. where this happened, that they wanted somebody to like be angry about it in finance that they could be like, you, we're sending you to prison. Uh, and I actually think that it then became this big deal. And because it was also just in the news so much that I honestly think that's also part of the reason that it. You're right, because yeah. we, yeah. we needed a scalp at that right. point. And and and. Tom Hayes was basically the um the, the full guy. No, I mean he was I'm not in any shape or form defending him, but um he was like the definitive sort of uh, full guy that we needed in terms of like some bank has got to go to prison because none of them have. So like they they um screwed up everyone's mortgages, but the guy that goes to jail manipulated a rate no one understands or probably cares about that doesn't really affect anyone. Well, it does. I, I mean, that, I it think does affect people. <laughs> it affects people. Like if you have I mean, loans or, like, I mean, like it's 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 not a it's, it's a very important rate. <laughs> just just to be clear. Just to be clear. I just think in terms of relativity, like he's got a yeah, really long yeah. sentence. Ten years is a very long time to go to prison for considering Especially your contemporaries yeah. didn't nothing happened to them, mm. right? right? Yeah. No, I think that's completely true. Okay, it's time for a numbers round. I'm going to start with something which is not wonky at all, but just jumped out at me from a story which has been doing the rounds from Texas Monthly. My number is $19,064, which is the annual per capita income in Marfa, Texas. And there are two types of people listening to Slate Money. There are the people who are like, Duh, of course I know what Marfa Texas is. And then there are people who are like, why on earth should I know what Marfa Texas is? And Isabella is definitely in the latter group. Marfa Texas is this tiny little town and its population is falling. It was 3,000 in 1999 and it is now just 1,700. And it's this tiny little town in the middle of the Sonoran Desert in West Texas, um, which is this art mecca. And there's this wonderful Texas Monthly article about it. But the point is that it is famous on the tourist trail, a million like super rich tourists from all over the world go there every year to gawp at beautiful minimalist art by Donald Judd. And they stay in expensive hotels like the Hotel St. George and the Hotel Paisano. And there are, you know, cool coffee shops and bars and restaurants. And it feels like a really thriving place. And then you realize the annual per capita income is $19,000. And that shows you just how limited tourism is is a force of um, economic development. Really interesting. Anna, do you have a number? I do. It's 127,000 tons. That is the amount of avocados from Mexico that will be coming to the U.S. for the Super Bowl. And (laughs) I... They won't actually be sitting in the stadium. No, they won't. They won't. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, do they get the cheap seats? The expensive oh, they, seats? there are no cheap seats, <laughs> especially not this Super Bowl. But um, I thought that so this is actually a little interesting for multiple reasons. A, with the Super Bowl, but B, because now avocados have become part of like crime in Mexico. And it used Wait, to be. So, so just to be clear, the mm-hmm. avocados are not. The avocados. This is something to do with guacamole. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it it is in fact because people eat guacamole while they're watching the Super Bowl. (laughs) And so avocados have, they are part of like, there was like avocado growers had to like pay protection money because Americans are eating so much more avocados. Um, But then a number of other things have happened. But avocados are a very complex fruit and a lot of them are coming to the United States. (laughs) And And I will be eating them them on on Sunday. 
Um, While rooting for so apparently Kansas there's City. A, there's a football game on Sunday. Emily, you're going to be watching it. Probably, yeah, yeah. I think well, hey, pizza. We're well going to eat pizza and and watch football. Maybe no guacamole this year. Sadly, you're the only. What's one. your number? My number is 150 million. That is the number of households worldwide that have a Amazon Prime membership. And it's been a huge increase from less than two years ago. I think it was, I didn't write it down, but I think less than two years was about 100 million. And well, Amazon was famously always very reluctant to reveal this number for many years. And they only just started saying what it was. Yeah, they said they had earnings yesterday and the earnings were very good. And one of the reasons is because now if you're a Prime member, they switched this year to giving you, to doing more one-day shipping, making that standard for Prime. And like, it's just so convenient. It's so seductive. It's the greatest um, thing ever. It's really incredible. To just think, think about of all it. those Chinese goods made with coal-fired plants, mm-hmm. shipped in the wasteful packaging, delivered to you by a car emitting more CO two. I mean, it's it's no bueno, but it's really an amazing uh, service, and it's interesting that everyone's <laughs> everyone's a subscriber. It's interesting. Is he? Think so, of the number. <laughs> kind of related. So I'll be contrarian. I'm going to give you a negative number. I like that. Uh, I'm going to give you minus five. Uh, minus five. So it's minus five pounds per ton at the moment uh, in the UK. That's the price for recycled paper. Um, wow. Because so this, this price used to be very much positive, but we are basically in the midst of a paper glut. There's a paper, recycled paper cardboard tsunami basically because um we are recycling everyone's you know being very good separating their recyclables but there isn't any demand for that uh, recycled paper anymore not least because china has closed its doors to recycled imports which has upset the entire market so we've got negative rates on on in german bonds but we've also got negative rates in waste paper and i'm going to be doing a story about that soon wow so should we just give up on recycling in Australia, apparently they're asking people, because it's not just a UK thing, it's a global thing. Apparently they're asking people to stop segregating. Some areas I've heard, I mean, rumor trage, I haven't confirmed it. Apparently they're stopping um, uh, people segregating their, their paper. Cause it's, and and the, the funny thing is where they're not, you, all the paper is just accumulating because it costs so much to store it in internal conditions. You know, warehouses cost money. They're, they're burning it. I have watched with my own eyes the sanitation people that come pick up my garbage take the recycling mm-hmm. that we put out in the plastic, clear plastic bag and throw it in with the other garbage. And yet we still in my house separate out the recyclables. Why? Why? Well, I, I, having got into waste recently, I can tell you that actually the waste waste is um, the waste processing plants are really sophisticated these days, and they can segregate things quite easily. Oh. So we, we used to have to segregate things very meticulously, whereas mm-hmm. now in the UK at least we can put like paper and tins and aluminium and everything together in the same one because they go to a plant and they've got magnets and clever sort of um, color focused lasers that figure all this stuff out so it's and i always thought that was a myth i thought it would just go and end up in china or in malaysia um shipped elsewhere it was all big conspiracy but no apparently these these plants are actually very sophisticated the problem isn't the sorting the problem is the lack of demand for the recyclables the recyclables yeah okay i think that's it for us this week thank you isabella kaminska for coming on Slate Money and explaining everything Brexit and everything else to us. You're welcome back anytime. Thank you, Jasmine Molly, for producing this transatlantic edition of Slate Money. Thank you for listening. The email as ever is slatemoney at slate.com. 
and we will talk to you next week on Sleep Money. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.